<laughs> hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. Uh, we'll be getting into this week's news segment with Adam Boileau in just a minute. And then we will be hearing from this week's sponsor guest, Dan Amiga, the co-founder and CTO of Island. And uh, yeah, Adam, what do you think? Dan Amiga. I think That's having good. the last name Amiga for a computer guy is, uh, is pretty good, right? That is a hell of a last name. I was sitting there grinning at that one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just like Tim Apple. That's right, Dan Amiga. Um, so Island is one of those companies where people tell you what they do and you say, that's stupid. Uh, but five minutes later, you say, oh, uh, okay, that makes sense. And I, I kind of need I need what they're selling right now. Uh, they make a security-focused enterprise browser that has a bunch of cool features and use cases. And yeah, Dan is popping in this week to talk about enterprise browsers generally. Stick around for that one. Uh, I'm a big fan, actually, of the island concept. And uh, believe me when I say I started out as a skeptic. Uh, that is coming up later. But first up, it is time for a check of the week's news headlines with Adam Boileau. Now, Adam, pretty much as soon as we finished recording last week, news broke of a, an intrusion into a bunch of uh, State Department you know, Microsoft cloud email accounts, uh, among other US government email accounts. Um, apparently there was a Chinese APT driven intrusion into these sorts of accounts. I mean, that's pretty standard workaday APT like behavior. I guess where it gets interesting is the how. Yes, it certainly is an interesting one. The story appears to be that the attackers were able to uh, sign access tokens for Microsoft Azure infrastructure um, for any account, yeah. um, which is not obviously not ideal. Um, it, the Microsoft's been a little bit vague about the exact mechanism of how, but I mean, as a cloud provider, you've kind of got one job, and that's to authenticate your users before you give them access to your, you know, to their Outlook uh, on the web. In this case, it seems that maybe Chinese actors had either obtained key material and were able to sign their own tokens, or had unconstrained access to an API that would sign tokens uh, using. Uh, there was a Microsoft like a signing key that's used for consumer accounts, and there appeared to be some kind of validation issue where you could use that key material to sign, you know, the corporate uh, 365 account tokens. So we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know how far breached into Microsoft the attackers got to either get access or to have the information to be able to do it. We've seen, like, Kevin Beaumont, for example, used to work at Microsoft, was on uh, Mastodon, talking a bit about it, and his take was that, you know, you kind of needed to know a fair bit about the plumbing to have done this, hmm. and then kind of left at that. And, I, know, I, I mean, I did see his, his post on that, and, you know, let's be careful not to underestimate the intelligence of these attackers, right? Like, yes. they don't necessarily need to have had all sorts of super secret inside info. There are some smart people out there who are yes, good at figuring this are. stuff out. But, you know, you've honed in on the on the main thing, which is the PR weaseling from Microsoft, where they say yes. that the attackers acquired a, a signing key, you know, and they <laughs> leave it at that. They don't say how it was acquired, if it was actually key mat or just access to a signing box. Like, they don't say. No, they don't say. And it appears to have been happening for some time, like a month or so. And uh, reading between the lines, it looks like it was reported by one of the victims, I think, you know, US mm. government agency, using the logging. Probably they one told, of them who had E5, which is well, the way that you can get these logs because, my, you know, for Microsoft, logging is a premium feature. 
Yes, and that's certainly one of the points that has also been, you know, kind of honed in on in the reporting. Um, you know, if you didn't pay extra for logs, maybe you wouldn't have noticed. Maybe you shouldn't have to pay extra for logs. Maybe Microsoft should read their own damn logs. Uh, you know, there's certainly been uh, some discussion around what this means in terms of logging as a premium cloud feature. And, you know, that's a thing that has drawn eye from all sorts of people over the last, you know, couple of years since... Uh, Azure became so popular but yeah overall I think it's just a good reminder to everybody that cloud services have flaws like everybody else mm. um, I have some of the rhetoric has been a bit weird around things like should Microsoft have issued CVEs for this stuff which yeah yeah so doesn't this make is any sense this has been a weird turn in the yes. in the conversation around this which is like should you know cloud services have CVEs and it's like you know, I mean, my gut tells me no as well. Like, that's silly. But then if I try to, exp like, think about how to explain why they shouldn't have CVEs, I can't. So, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the point of having names for these bugs is so that other people can, can learn from them, it and yeah, leverage yeah. it. And if it's internal plumbing, if it's, you know, if it's software that's used by somebody else, it makes sense. If it's a combination of software and infrastructure and maintenance and people and processes like it is for cloud providers, then it doesn't really make sense to CVE mm. them because you're paying the cloud provider to take care of this for you. It's their job to make their platform robust and secure and so on and to communicate with you the things you need to know about. Okay, okay. so that's a good description of why you don't need a CVE specifically, right? Because they're used for tracking issues. Yes. Fair enough, 100% fair enough. But I think they're... You know, I think people are right to maybe view CVEs as having utility beyond just issue tracking, right? Like they do actually serve as a transparency measure and we don't have an equivalent for cloud yes. services. And that I think, you know, so I think that's more the issue that people are driving at, right? Yes, yeah, I, I agree, right? It's the specific use case of CVEs doesn't make sense, but having some degree of visibility enough to reason about your risks and security posture and so on. That's that it, that's it though. Like, how do you then take information that says, well, someone might get Microsoft's internal key mat that can authenticate any, any attack? Like, how do you design around that? You know, you kind of can't. Yes, exactly. But that's also useful, right? I mean, it's useful to have, here are the assumptions, here's the things we, ha we just have to trust our cloud providers for. Mm. And then the cloud providers have to demonstrate enough transparency and enough, you know, reporting and so on for us to be, you know, to trust them. And that is not a balance that, you know, cloud has kind of arrived at yet. Like we don't know how to trust cloud providers yet. Yeah, I mean, this morning I asked Tom Uren what he's working on for Seriously Risky Biz this week, and, and this is it. He's he's put his thinking cap on to think about, you know, how policymakers might respond to this situation because it's yes. not really a good situation where Microsoft can say, yeah, a bunch of Chinese-sponsored, you know, APT hackers owned a bunch of really important government email accounts, but we're not really going to tell you how. I mean, look, in the case of the US government, they're probably – maybe explaining a little bit more, um, but they're not talking about it publicly. I don't know, man. It's just typical Microsoft, you know, PR, weaselly, icky stuff, you know? Yes, and I mean, certainly the idea that the US government probably has a big enough and important enough relationship with Microsoft to get special information, I mean, that's, you know, somewhat reassuring. But for everybody else in the world, <laughs> and I mean, even governments like, you know, Australia and New Zealand, I mean, New Zealand in particular, we're not big enough to get any special treatment, mm. you know, out of Microsoft. So it's not super reassuring if it just solves it for the US government. But, you know, we all rely on Microsoft and Google and, you know, Oracle and whoever else. 
and there isn't really a way to measure how well they're doing because we don't have any data and there's no mm. common way to talk about it, which you know, comes back to that CVE conversation. But it's very hard to reason about the innards of other people's infrastructure when you don't even know how it's structured, how it works. You know, It's yeah. a complicated problem and I don't know that we have an answer yet, but Chinese APT hackers in you know the State Department's emails is definitely going to make that conversation more important and more relevant. Yeah. yeah, and look, just one more note on this whole thing, which is I saw a couple of US officials complaining about this. You know, like initially this was, I think Reuters broke it. It was written up as this big breathless thing. Look, this is standard, well within norms collection. Don't complain. <laughs> so just, do, just, just be better, right? Like yeah. this isn't one you can complain about because you sort of lose, you lose your authority on norms when you complain about stuff like this. This is you are doing this to them; they are doing this to you. It's very, very, very normal. Yes, especially when you know some of the targets uh, appear to be things that were particularly relevant to Chinese interests. You know, the yeah. visits of U.S. officials to China, et cetera, et cetera. Like you know. As you say, within norms. Yeah, it's definitely fair game. Uh, a late inclusion in our news list here is a report from Mandiant uh, that looks at Chinese APT tactics recently. It's just a good read and I'd recommend people take it for a spin. But, you know, they're targeting enterprise security stuff. They're targeting border devices. They're doing, you know, and you look at some of their recent living off the land stuff. I got to say, you know, like the, the, the Chinese tradecraft over the last year has been pretty impressive. Yeah, I absolutely agree. When I read this Mandian piece, the thing that came to my mind was, this is how I like to hack things. Like all of that phishing and popping edge devices. Like that was never any fun. I never liked that stuff. This is how I want to hack things. Mm. And I'm glad that the kids, in this case, you know, the the PLA, uh, are still, you know, doing it in the way that resonates with, you know, my historical upbringing as a hacker. Yeah, I mean, you just go contrast this with like the APT1 report from years and years and years ago. And it like, it's it's night and day, basically. Yes, yeah, getting. absolutely. So, you know, respect to the <laughs> Chinese crews doing, doing good work. <laughs> we actually do have one more Chinese item here. I mean, look, you know, every week we have, you know, a dozen stories about various APT campaigns uh, around the world. We've got a write-up on one here from the, uh, the record. It's another Chinese campaign f- uh, focusing on uh, telcos in Pakistan, but it actually looks like, well, it's not just telcos, um, but telcos have been impacted. But it actually looks like a really interesting kind of supply chain attack that has been executed here. Yes, uh, the reports say that there's a Pakistani government like office software package, the eOffice app, which is built by the Pakistani government, distributed and is used you know, by government and government-related entities. And the attackers in question got into the build process or supply chain for that and like backdoored the installer um, which given that uh, all the users are important people in Pakistan you know pretty smart place to go uh, and it's backdoored with a variant of Shadowpad which is you know classic Chinese ABT tooling so absolutely could be someone else pretending to be the Chinese because <laughs> you know that's a, it's a pretty obvious tell but on the other hand if it works then uh, you may as well keep using it yeah. so bad times in Pakistan <laughs> Yeah, uh, and uh, look, another cloud one this week. Jump Cloud uh, had a had an incident. So Catalan has a source who says that some of the infrastructure used by the attackers in this one might overlap with uh, North Korean stuff. He's not super confident on that because I think it's just coming from one source. But I just thought I'd mention it anyway, like low confidence, but that's just something he heard. Uh, but walk us through what actually happened here, Adam. 
so it looks like Jump Cloud had an employee get fished, uh, and then the attacker leveraged that access to get into some internal systems. Uh, some days later, Jump Cloud found weird stuff going on in one of their orchestration systems, you know, pulled the thread, it tied back to this phishing attack. So uh, they are worried. Jump Cloud, of course, uh, does provide a mechanism to like integrate auth into other apps. So a pretty reasonable target and quite a you know large number of customers. Uh, so they rotated credentials and internal API keys and notified some customers uh, and eventually came out and said that it was a very like tightly targeted set of attacks in terms of the customers that it ended up touching. Given what they do, which is provide auth to other things, you know, it's a pretty uh, reasonable target for supply chains. And there are some uh, like crypto-related customers, which would fit uh, DPRK uh, and their methodology for stealing access to those systems for money. So, yeah, yeah we don't know exactly, but, um, you know, another cloud supply chain attack very close on the heels of the Microsoft one is definitely interesting. And, you know, here we have an example too where, you know, like there would be no sort of cloud equivalent CVE for this, right? No. Because it's an employer getting fished, you know. So I think really maybe what we're after is less a CVE analogue you know, and more basic transparency reports on incidents. Yes, exactly. Like we have to have some degree of transparency into both the structure of cloud providers' infrastructure, but and the also like incidents, you know, things they've dealt with, controls they have in place. Like it's, it is a complicated problem. Yeah, it is. I mean, one thing I find interesting though is like the SEC now has some pretty strict guidance on listed companies having to disclose breaches. I wonder if they can extend that guidance a little bit and actually make companies explain what the incidents were because that would – I mean, look, in this case, we've got a reasonable explanation. They've yes. said what happened. It's less Weasley than the Microsoft thing. You get, you, get, you get the sense that this is more, you know, good faith transparency than PR Weaseling. But uh, anyway, just, just a thought. Just a thought. What else have we got here? Um, oh, man, yeah, there's a Citrix – a real bad Citrix O'Day uh, doing the rounds at the moment, and that one is being exploited in the wild. Citrix has just put out a patch. There's also some, like, well, you know, it's situation normal, right? There's some cold fusion <laughs> drama happening as well. But yeah. start off by telling us about this Citrix one because it sounds like it's an absolute disaster. Uh, yeah, this is pretty bad. This is a pre-auth remote code exec to privileged user in Citrix's like gateway product and the application delivery control, the ADC, which is part of the. I mean, they're the know, they're the two core Citrix. That's the two you know, core bits yeah. of Citrix Edge governs. So pretty bad place to have uh, pre-auth RCE. <laughs> it's a CVSS nine point eight. Yes, uh, <laughs> and as you say, inactive exploitation and just just not good. So as you said, Citrix did patch the vulnerabilities pretty quickly, uh, but there is an end-of-life version of the product that's vulnerable, which is never a great sign. Citrix has patched those as well, despite being EOL, uh, but it's just never a great sign. Uh, Look, I mean, the type are. of customer who's using EOL software is probably the type of customer who won't know that they've issued a patch for it, right? Exactly, like, that's what yes. you're getting at. That's, that's what I'm getting at, yes. Yeah. So I think this is probably going to be, it's probably going to go pretty large uh, because these things are designed to be on the internet, pre authorized why wouldn't you go nuts uh, yeah. with this if you're a you know, ransomware crew or Chinese or anybody else? Yeah, I mean, we don't know who's doing it yet, but no, I'm we guessing don't. we'll know by next week. I suspect so, <laughs> yes. And so tell us got, about this cold fusion thing, because this thing apparently is drama, drama, drama. 
So there's uh, two floors in Cold Fusion, one which Adobe kind of patched already, uh, one which I think maybe Rapid7 or someone else who had found it reported to them uh, disclosed in a blog post that then got pulled. And the net result is the two of them combined leads to Cold Fusion getting shelled. And there are, once again, actors in the wild dropping web shells on Cold Fusion uh, and going crazy. So it's, yeah, seems like a mix of bad patch plus maybe inadvertent disclosure where the two combined, like the impact of the two combined maybe wasn't clear, but his shell. Yeah, yeah. It was funny because it was last night, Australia time, where Catalan posted in the uh, posted the Rapid7 blog post into Slack. And by the time I clicked on it, 30 seconds later, the blog post was gone. <laughs> it was a 404 <laughs> and there was just like confusion reigned. But this is also a sign that, you know, the blog post was probably only up for a minute and that's just Catalan for you. You know what I mean? He's, yes. <laughs> you know, total total information awareness department at Risky Biz HQ is, uh, is Catalan <laughs> Kimpanu. But anyway. Um, now, look, while we've got a real bug-heavy front half of the show, we may as well keep the good times running, Adam. And uh, there is apparently a bug in some Rockwell, you know, industrial automation gear that is being exploited in the wild, according to CISA, and that is a government attacker uh, who's doing that. We've also seen uh, the disclosure of a bunch of flaws in some Honeywell, uh, you know, ICS gear. Uh, so a big week for the old control systems uh, people. What do we know, though, about these Rockwell ones that are being exploited in the wild? Uh, so the Rockwell one appears to be kind of remote code exec through memory corruption uh, in the relevant devices. What's interesting about it is that, you know, Scissor points that points at Rockwell for disclosing it to them. Rockwell says they were told about it by somebody. Dragos says that they found some APT crew with bugs, but they weren't using it. So it's a little bit unclear. It feels like maybe a stash of... Yeah, APT right. tooling was spotted somewhere, maybe by Dragos. So it's it in the wild, but not being used in the wild. Yes, so the, yeah, there's okay. a little bit of careful wording in the Dragos blog post that then gets less and less careful as it's you know each next source that's reporting it further on down the track. But uh, yeah, it feels like you know the bugs were found in possession of an APT group, but had not been used you know in malice yet. Yeah, so someone got their bug stash rumbled, basically. That's kind of what it feels like, or they left them lying around somewhere where they weren't supposed to or whatever else. But yeah, yeah. either way, RCE, uh, you know, in control systems gear is just never a good time. Uh, no, but it's also to be expected, right? And anyone yes. who anyone worth their salt running these environments understands that those devices are not to be trusted with, you know, random packets, right? Like you just you just need to seal them off as best you can and monitor the absolute crap out of them because you know you just have to assume that there's a CVSS nine plus in all of them all the time. Yes, exactly, and and the kind of architectures, the reference architectures for control systems gear does. You know, they go big on network segregation, which is good because it's the thing we can understand and verify and so on. Um, but, you know, when it's also in software further kind of back in the architecture, it can get concerning, you know, if there's, uh, the, you know, as the protocols are a bit more complicated, the further up that you go. Yeah, I just feel like that's something that's often lost in a lot of the media coverage. Every time yes. someone discloses bugs in this stuff, there's this sense in the media coverage that the world is at risk right, of, of these kinetic impacts from cyber attacks. And it's like, well, that's, that's normal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's exactly. situation normal. Um, and you need, to, you need to act accordingly, right? Yeah, exactly. As an attacker, you've got to get near to this stuff to be able to operate it. And that requires a bunch of extra, you know, extra hacking beyond yeah. just yeah. the exploit. Uh, now, in terms of stamping out bugs, uh, CISA has passed down a directive to uh, US civilian agencies to uh, patch four Microsoft vulnerabilities uh, by August 1, 
I think some of these are actually in the wild. Uh, yeah, they're in the Kev list, right? So they're all on the Kev list. They're, they're being exploited in the wild. And I actually had a look. I looked up the CVEs to see like, well, how old are these things? You know what I mean? How grim is this? They're actually pretty recent. So, I mean, that's a silver lining. Yeah, one of them was a bug that allowed you to bypass one of the Outlook security warnings when you you know click on an attachment uh, in your email, which is one of those things that it's not a glamorous bug, but exactly the sort of workaday thing that is genuinely useful uh, to an attacker. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I guess the reason I say it was a silver lining is because I Googled those CVE numbers expecting to see that they were like, you know, six months old. And I was fully expecting to be very depressed about that, but they're not, they're like eight days old. So I'm like... Good for you. Good for yeah. you, US federal government. Catching eight-day-old <laughs> <Yes>. bugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to hack their nasty Citrix Edge devices, not to fish people with emails anymore. Now let's talk about some research out of Orca Security into uh, – they've given it a name. I'm sorry, I'm going to use it. They call it Bad Build. Um, but this is like a Google Cloud Build service that I don't know how important it is. It seems like it's something that would be important. Uh, but apparently this bug in it – that Google's tried to fix, but they've only partially fixed. And now Orca says, well, they haven't really fixed it. But walk us through this whole thing, please. Yeah. So a Google Cloud Build is a service that you use to kind of assemble software uh, and images or, you know, services for cloud deployments like into Kubernetes or whatever else. Uh, so part of a normal kind of continuous integration, continuous deployment architecture. And Google provides it as a, you know, kind of partially free service for people who use their products. And the crux of the vulnerability came down to kind of like the default permissions given to the Google service running the build process such that it could access perhaps more of your Google Cloud infrastructure than you expected. And Google's argument was, well, that's a sensible default for most people. If you have more requirements than that, you know, then it's up to you to customize the perms and uh, the people who researched it said that's kind of not enough but uh, I mean the overall impact would be abusing this to modify software that's going to be deployed into your Google Cloud and from there stealing access to you know whatever data you're processing so a bit niche but also you know in a CICD world and and everything like these stuff you know you do have to think about all of these nuances of how the cloud permissions work and and all that and it's not enough to just roll with the defaults necessarily so you know kind of both sides have a point but yeah. either way uh, it's not not great if you end up getting supply chained in your cloud build process. I think there's too much buck passing generally from companies like Google who say, well, you know, if someone needs something better than that, then they can just twiddle the, def you know, change the defaults. And it's like, well, maybe you should have better defaults and people can, you know, yeah. like default deny, right? Yeah, yeah, and also you have to have enough understanding of the plumbing of the cloud architecture and the, you know all of the gubbins, which you know if you've ever looked in the middle of AWS's permission system, like it's just super complicated and very easy to mess up. And if you're not a, you know, AWS engineer who's worked there, then it can be hard to understand. Yeah, I mean you know, my impact and my the, running gag lately is uh, they call it S3, but it should really just be S2 because the first S in Amazon S3 stands for simple. <laughs> it's simple storage service and it it just no. isn't anymore you know I mean, it was once it was <laughs> once upon a it, time it's not simple anymore no, please simple amazon anymore. change the name to amazon s2 <laughs> storage service amazon storage service ass <laughs> i guess that's why they haven't changed it right that's probably why they haven't changed it. amazon <laughs> 
Uh, what else have we got here? Uh, the White House has unveiled a voluntary uh, labeling system for makers of IoT things like your, you know, your T-link, your D-links and your TP-links and whatnot. They can now have a little cyber shield sticker on them that they are allowed to put on it if, you know, they're going to get regular updates and they have strong default passwords and don't open their management interfaces to the internet. But, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier and look, I think this is good, right? Like, don't, don't get me wrong. I think this is good. But it just boggles my mind that there are devices still being sold that do those really silly things like exposing management interfaces to the to the internet. Because I cannot recall ever buying, when I've gone and bought one of these like little home routers, I always, I'm stingy. I always buy like a cheap little crappy <laughs> one, right? Because I've got like other stuff to do the, you know, the networking beyond the the routing to the to the telco equipment. You know, I've never seen one that actually does that. But they must be out there because this has been a push that's been ongoing for years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess this is good news, right? Yeah, I, I think it is good news. Uh, I mean, having some sensible standards for how long should we expect patching from the manufacturer for, like that's a really useful step forward. And, you know, sensible default credentials. It's been a while since we've seen default credentials on consumer gear. It tends to be a bit better than that. We're at the old uh, Cisco Cisco a little bit of a different story, so they won't yeah. be getting their uh, security seal. Um, but no, you know, product labeling is just a you know, it's a basic that we should get right. Um, and as you say, management interfaces on the internet is also a thing that just probably shouldn't be a thing anymore. And it, you know, this is going to help. Yeah, I mean, you know, there. we've just talked about all these big enterprise problems, right? And then you know, you think, oh well, you know, home routers, who cares? You look at some of the botnets that have been built out of them, though. Yes. You know, and it's they're causing actual problems. Like DDoS is still a terrible criminal business model. Like they don't seem to really make any money. You know, I, I the best money they can make seems to be hiring them out to other people to like DDoS other gamers they don't like. That seems to be, you know, like the, the only successful business model because the extortion model doesn't seem to work that well. And But it still just creates drama, right? You just think, well, if sticking a sticker, if putting a sticker on the box for some, you know, router says this one's a good one and it actually is not going to get mirrored, then I say awesome news. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think overall definitely the right step. It's, uh, it's funny it's taken this long in some respects. Now, Suzanne Smalley, who's over at the record these days, has a write-up on the Cooper Davis Act, which seems like a well-intentioned bill that has some really troubling wording in it. Tell us about the Cooper Davis Act. Yeah, so this is an act uh, named after a teenager from Kansas uh, who had bought, uh, like, accidentally bought some fentanyl, bought some drugs on the internet, and they had fentanyl in it, and uh, he ended up dying. Uh, and they are attempting to make messaging companies, social media companies, uh, to some extent uh, responsible for detecting drug dealing on their platforms and then cooperating with law enforcement, sharing that with law enforcement, uh, despite the presence of, in some cases, uh, you know, end-to-end -end crypto or other controls. And the language that's particularly concerning uh, relates to companies who choose to make themselves, uh, quote, willfully blind, unquote, uh, to you know, such abuse of their platforms. And, of course, that's got all of the, you know, the crypto people uh, all at Twitter. Well, and I think it's reasonable that they're all a Twitter, right? Like, yes. And you know me, I'm not someone who just automatically sides with the, you know, crypto absolutists. In fact, quite the opposite. But I think they got a point on this one. And it's just the wording is too vague. 
And honestly, I don't know that the intent of this bill would be for these providers to disable E2EE, but leaving wording in that leaves that door open for someone to argue it later seems like a pretty bad idea, right? Yeah. So like I, think I-, the, I think the goal here is that companies like Snapchat and whatever, if they become aware that there is trafficking happening on their platforms, they need to tell authorities. And I think that is fair enough. I think they will be getting reports of this sort of stuff already. I think having some sort of regulation or law that says, you know, if you're getting reports that someone is selling heroin on your platform, maybe tell the DEA, I don't think this is a bad idea. Um, But again, it's the wording. And, you know, we've seen situations where changing some words in a bill can really settle stuff down. Like the assistance and access bill in Australia, which was, you know, very controversial only among you know, uh, uh, very online technology people, it must be said. Like the average person on the street, had, you know, didn't really care. Um, but some of the fears were assuaged when the government just added a sentence into the bill that basically said we won't use this to, um, you know, disable E2EE, basically. Like that's that's all they did. And people went, okay, fine, fair enough. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, in this case, like changing the wording here would be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think as is, it seems problematic. Mm. But as you say, like if it's a case where, you know, there is a mechanism to report stuff like that happening on the platform, then, you know, there should be something that would then require them to tell the relevant authorities, et cetera, et cetera. Like that seems more workable, yeah. um, you know, because then there's a degree of, you know, it's not a panopticon like the uh, cypherpunks want you to believe and, you know, it may still reduce harm in the communities, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, right now seems a little problematic. We've got a couple of spyware firms uh, based in Europe who've been blacklisted by the United States. There's Cytrox AD, which makes the Predator uh, software, and also also Intellexa. Intellexa is in Hungary, and Cytrox AD is in uh, North Macedonia. We saw what happened to NSO Group after they were added to the entities list. Like it was not a good time. So no. uh, it looks like the United States is really going to hit companies like these with the sanctions hammer when their stuff turns up in the wrong place i think this is fantastic yeah no this seems like uh, like good progress and we saw i think the predator malware was the one that was being used in uh, greece there was a bunch of politicians and you know other political people that ended up uh, getting predated and we've also seen you know commercial spyware used in other areas of europe you know in um, spain for example so yeah this seems like a good move by the u.s to me yeah and you know, this is policy now and they're sanctioning these companies like they're mowing the lawn and that's going to drive some change. I really do believe that. Yeah, and I certainly think, you know, it will give potential investors some pause, you know, when a new startup comes along with some great ideas about how to exploit mobile phones. So yeah, this is, you know, it's good for everybody. Now, Kevin Collier got this one and it's really funny because what happened today is I sent a tweet to you about this because it, it was sort of something that blew up on Twitter. Uh, and uh, Kevin, Kevin's written it up for NBC News. It ties back to something that we've talked about uh, a fair bit this year, which is the absolute shit show that is Google search results, right? So, you know, you search for some software and stuff. These days you're getting uh, terrible, um, you know, terrible results that link you to malware and whatever. Um, now it looks like scammers are managing to change the phone numbers for large corporations in their like Google Maps listings so that like people will call them and then they can get scammed. And it's in this case, like some major airlines have had their phone numbers changed uh, by scammers. Yeah, one guy, uh, the guy on Twitter who broke this was uh, flying somewhere, got delayed, went to phone 
whichever airline it was, American Airlines or Delta or something, uh, and used the number from the Google Maps results and it went to a guy that then tried to scam him um, you know, for money to change his, change his flights. And you know, we have seen you know, Google Maps um, and business information targeted you know, many times over the years, but you know, it's kind of unclear how the phone numbers in this case were being changed, whether it was a social process, whether there was some weakness somewhere. Um, but yeah, net result is this turned out to be more widespread than I think anyone expected. I mean, when you're mm. talking about you know, major US airlines, Air France, um, you know, this is a thing that probably is actually making scammers real money. I mean, you can talk about, well, okay, was it, was it an insider? Was it a social engineering thing? Or was it malicious SEO? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, we don't know. And I'm sure Google will, uh, you know, quietly fix it and maybe we'll see some details about uh, what's going on. And I think that... Maybe um, we will, but maybe we won't. And and this is why... Yeah. There's another reason I included this one this week is because this is a theme this week of these major tech companies, you know, just not being all that transparent about these sorts of things. Yeah, and especially when they are pretty you know, integrated into modern society. When people open Google, search for the thing, get given a phone number, they're just going to phone it. They're not necessarily going to think twice about mm. how accurate is information, can I trust the source, is Google Maps a trusted source? Um, you know, when you look at the details, sometimes they'll say, you know, this was verified by a phone call or blah, 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 but, you know, that's a hard thing to do at scale consistently and, you know, Google's got some work to do, clearly. Now, tell me about Worm GPT because this, uh, this is fun. Thankfully, the hype on on large language models has died down a little. I do have a really interesting interview coming up with uh, Ryan Callenberg. I'm going to post that in a couple of days to the main channel. Uh, that's a soapbox interview where we talked about like proof points view of large language models. And keep in mind, they process a bunch of text, right? Uh, an awful lot of text. And they are using large language models to do some interesting stuff. But I think the most interesting thing I learned in that interview is that BEC actors are using ChatGPT to do BEC in Japanese. And Japan isn't a country that has dealt with a lot of BEC, so it's shooting fish in a barrel at the moment over there, right? So that's interesting. And now we're seeing some like BEC large language model tools turn up. Um, Joe Warminski wrote up this one. This was another uh, story that I saw doing the rounds on Twitter, but uh, Joe's written it up for the record. And it's, uh, yeah, this thing called WormGPT. Tell us about WormGPT, Adam. Uh, so this is uh, you know a large language model similar to ChatGPT but designed for offline use. It's based on a, an open source uh, large language model uh, GPTJ uh, and it, you know tuned for malicious use. And you know, the online options like things like ChatGPT you know, have mechanisms to try and detect you know weird use cases of them. Uh, so having them be disconnected from that kind of protection is useful for attackers. Whether or not this is legitimately useful, and we can understand that having a language model generate your, you know, BC lures or phishing lures or whatever else is going to be helpful, especially, as you say, across language barriers. Um, but, you know, I don't, yeah, it's kind of hard to say how big of a deal it's going to be. And Proofpoint's obviously in a great place uh, to look at the, you know, their corpus or email and try and decide how much uh, we do see of, uh, of well, it, you know, AI-assisted it, it, it lowers the barrier to entry, right, is the yes. way that I see this, right? Especially if your language skills aren't all that great. It opens up new markets for you in different yes. languages, things like that. So, I, you know, I get that, oh, big scary GPT tool for, you know, for, for hackers, right? Like, I get why you're sitting there going, huh, you know, it doesn't seem that big a deal to me. But I think, <laughs> I think really when you're talking about the fraud-based stuff that involves 
getting into email chains and stuff, I do think this is a big leg up for, for people doing malicious stuff. Yeah, I mean, And I the tooling is going to get better too. The yeah, tooling is going to get better and he's going to start automatically generating responses and, you know, it's going to... It's gonna, you know, it's gonna make it easier to do this sort of stuff at scale as well. I think, you yeah. know, automate automating this stuff, automating this stuff is gonna be useful too. To I mean, your point about Japan, I think, is really interesting because there are whole markets in the world that are difficult because of the language barrier. You know, English, you know, everyone is probably pretty used to scamming in English, but if you can do it in a whole bunch of other languages, you've got soft targets that uh, you know aren't used to these problems in as much as we are. So, yeah, I, you know, mm. I absolutely think there are important niches for this, but. Uh, you know, another headline about, you know, AI-assisted fraud is hard to be excited. Yeah, I, I listened to a really disturbing radio report last night, actually from Joe Tidy uh, from BBC, who I know listens to the show. So hi, Joe. I was on my way home from uh, from dinner and was just listening to ABC Radio and they were uh, broadcasting BBC. And he, um, yeah, he did a report about people using open source large, uh, yeah, open source image generators, AI image generators to create, uh, you know, CSAM. And, um, you know, the, the, the real sense you got from this report is that that cat's out of the bag and there's nothing you can do about it, you know. And there's a question of like, well, should these things have been released in an open source form for people to sort of take it and do this stuff with it? Well, it's all academic now because it's out there, you know. And, and without releasing some of these things as open source, you don't get the benefits either. So it was just a really interesting report. I thought he did a good job on it, but it was also very depressing. Yeah, it's always difficult when there is that kind of, you know, dual use technology that, you know, you can do crimes with, but also have other benefits and, and things we can explore. So yeah, it's hard, you, you can't, you can't hide the math forever. Uh, yeah. And then we have to deal with the consequences. The chair of the FCC in the United States has come up with a good idea which is to invest $200 million to boost the security of K-12 schools in the United States. And obviously K-12 schools, community colleges, universities, all of those organizations are getting smashed with ransomware because they're not particularly well equipped to defend themselves against it. $200 million, you know, you and I had an argument about this uh, the other day because <laughs> you said, well, what are they going to do with $200 million? And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, you can do a lot with $200 million. You can actually, <clears throat> excuse me, you can actually do quite a lot when you look at some of the largest security companies in the world, you know, what's proof points turnover? Like, you know, just thinking of a big one, I think it's one point something billion. 200 million bucks just for schools, I think is actually, if it's spent well, it's going to go somewhere. Your counterpoint to that is, oh, well, they won't spend it well. I'm a little bit more optimistic these days. I think the science of spending money on security technologies is just better understood than it ever has been. And I, I look, I think this is worth a, worth a go considering the returns will be, you know, hopefully uh, uh, really, really worth it. Yeah, I mean, I am always a little bit cynical uh, about you know, no. programs like this being you. captured by security vendors. But yeah, it, it absolutely, it could go well. I'm just always afraid of, you know, uh, a firewall appliances with a built-in antivirus that, or a built-in web filtering that's going to get you owned three years from now. Uh, when See, I think, I think we're past that. I think we're past that, especially if the FCC has control over this sort of program they're going to design it yeah and that you know you absolutely it could work i'm always skeptical as you know um but this is um this is part of the program that they call e-rate which is used to fund internet access for schools and libraries and things and it makes sense to kind of tie that 
internet access part of it into also having some basic security controls in place uh, and you know it's a program they're exploring uh, and as you say like you know they can design it so that it would work well and I don't think there's very many you know community libraries that want to design their own architecture for security and blah 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 they want to be given a here's a solution that's proved go yes. spend your funding money on this and you know it's possible that we as an industry might not screw that up yeah yeah that's what I'm I see I'm you know I'm glass half full, your glass half empty on this one. But, you know, let's see. Let's meet again in five years and see yes. how it went, basically. <laughs> uh, the Federal Reserve in the United States has terminated an enforcement action against Capital One over its 2019 breach. So the enforcement action, you know, began in 2020. And now they're like, no, nope, you're good. You've done enough. Uh, your security's looking pretty good. See you later. Yeah, and I was uh, legit surprised when we when I saw this in the news list because you do see so many stories of you know Twitter being subject to extra security obligations to the government for the next ten years after they get breached, and you just kind of mm. assume that this never ends and is never results in meaningful change. But uh, it's nice to read a story that says actually, yeah, after you know a couple of years. Uh, they are at the point where they don't need to be supervised anymore. So Yeah, and this is the second consent order to be lifted. The first was from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which I've never heard mm. of before, <laughs> not being a finance person. Um, now, this was obviously the Paige Thompson, you know, um, breach at Capital One, which was, um, yeah, pretty hideous stuff. But, you know, the funny thing is, like, I'd always got the sense that Capital One actually knew what they were doing um, and that that was just a really unfortunate situation. Yeah, I mean, having an insider and someone that you know, understands all of that cloud plumbing and also likes, you know, tr having trophies of their access to stuff like that was a bad situation for them. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad that uh, you know it has worked out all right for them in the end. Yeah, and that was a story uh, from cybersecurity, uh, a cybersecurity dive written by Dan Ennis. Well done, and uh, we've got one from Darina Antoniuk here, which is the Norwegian Refugee Council has been hit by a cyber attack. The details are pretty few and far between on this one. The only reason I included it is because I think we saw evidence that uh, Ghost Rider, which is a Belarusian uh, APT crew. Uh, may have been going after this type of information a couple of years ago when there was unrest uh, in Belarus. And um, yeah, it's just uh, when Tom worked through this issue of refugee organisations being targeted, you know, the conclusion he came to was that it is the countries that are most likely to attack those sorts of organisations are the ones who want to do nasty things to the diaspora. They're not likely to be, you know, Five Eyes agencies trying to track jihadis moving with refugees they're much more likely to be people trying to track pro-democracy uh, uh activists who are setting up shop in a in another country yeah that, that makes a whole bunch of sense and obviously you know belarus has been pretty active they've obviously got a bunch of people leaving the country their proximity to ukraine and support of russia that you know that that would make sense to me as uh you know as motivations if it did turn out to be them either way seeing refugee information hackers just always you know gross yeah seeing it in the news list uh, there's been a De Spiegel story doing the rounds, which has been written up by everyone, which is some list of uh, VirusTotal customers leaked on VirusTotal, and everyone's making a big deal out of the fact that, uh, you know, there are government people who are VirusTotal pro, you know, subscribers or whatever. <laughs> like, they're using it to surveil, you know, people's accidentally uploaded attachments and whatever, when really... Okay, they're going to be doing that, but also the fact that people from NSA and Cyber Command would have virus total subscriptions is not strange to me. I think it would be <laughs> no. bigger news if they didn't have virus total subscriptions. Exactly. To be yes. Honest. 
yeah now this one did seem a, a little overhyped uh, although it would be it's not 100 percent clear but it would be quite funny if the list was itself uploaded the virus total and that was the mechanism by which it leaked which i think seems it is isn't pretty it? likely that, isn't that how it happened that, I mean, that seems the likeliest way for it to happen. I don't think it was specifically spelled out that way in the, yeah. in the Spiegel piece, but uh, that could also be machine translation. Uh, not, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Giving me the straight. So, straight yeah, dive. I mean, like cyber agencies and cyber signal agencies are going to use virus total. That's like, yes. that's, and that is fine. That yes, is fine. Yes, um, is. And just to tie it all off, Adam, last week we br- briefly mentioned that the Genesis market was trying to sell. Uh, it's enterprise and, you know, getting banned from forums for, for its listing and whatever. looks like they actually found a buyer. Yes, and uh, I'm sure that buyer will not be an intelligence agency or a police force. Uh, they uh, apparently have just sold the plumbing, though, rather than the user accounts. Um, but, you know, who knows if the inf- – I think they all said the infrastructure was included, so maybe there's some logs in the uh, you know in the backups or something that they'll get access to uh, if there's anything new. Since, Some uh, rusty, rusty machine operating as a as a Tor Onion service. Yes, <laughs> stuck in some basement, surrounded yeah. by ashtrays. Which is, <laughs> you know, usually that's when you see a raid, the, yes. that's what the infrastructure <laughs> tends to look like, right? Yes, exactly. So a good purchase, I guess, for whoever did it. <laughs> uh, nicely done. All right, mate. Uh, that is actually it for the week's news. Thank you so much for joining me uh, to to do this, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I'll talk to you then. <laughs> That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Uh, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Dan Amiga, the co-founder and CTO of Island. Island makes an enterprise browser and uh, you've heard us on this show say time and time again that the browser is the new OS. So why are we using consumer-focused browsers to do enterprise stuff? It just, it's like the Chewbacca defense, it does not make sense. So uh, Island is a new company uh, that does make an enterprise browser. And, you know, once you have control over a browser, you can do an awful lot with it. Like the use cases that stem from that are pretty much endless. Um, You can, yeah, you can just solve so many problems. So here's Island's co-founder, Dan Amiga. Uh, He's the co-founder and CTO. And uh, he's here to explain how the shift to enterprise browsers is a little bit like the shift to cloud 10 years ago. You know, it sounds risky and weird at first, but, uh, you know, in his view... It's basically inevitable, at least for certain use cases. Here's Dan Amiga. I always like to compare it to the cloud days. So 2015, you go and meet all the financials or the healthcare or and and you pitch them the cloud, right? And they and they will tell you, oh, it's a stupid idea. We will never go cloud. Our workloads will what, always let, be let our data out of our doors, exactly. out of our building. What sort of craziness is this? Yeah, I remember. I was there. We would never, <laughs> we would never do that, right? And then it's it's almost the reality today. So I think if you think about a, an enterprise browser and you think about what, what we've been doing in Ireland, it's it's less about let's replace your common edge and more about, you know, without us, you have to buy, deploy, integrate VPN, DLP programs, VDIs, proxies. Um, uh, you got to ship laptops to your contractors. You, you gotta you gotta block many things from users. You gotta ship them maybe another mobile phone because they don't want their own phone to be managed. So it's more about um, how do you make the end user experience um, kind of like the same experience we have at home, where we go buy a Mac and we we just work on the Mac. So I think it 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 kind of reminds me, uh, you know, as we said, the days of the uh, the cloud, right? 
well, mm. financials and healthcare will tell you, oh, we will never take our data outside. We will never go cloud. And 2023 is the reality. You think about the enterprise browser. It's not about replacing Chrome or Edge. That you get for free, by the way, right? It's, yeah. it's about how do you make the end user experience similar to a consumer experience, right? So you don't need to go and buy and integrate and deploy proxies and DLP solutions, VPNs. You don't need to ship laptops anymore to contractors. You don't need to procure new mobile devices to your end users because they don't want to install and manage the MDM on their, on their phones. So it's really all about um, bringing the same or the required level of security and connectivity organizations need, right? And when you bake it into the browser, it just makes things so much more simpler. And we've been getting, you know, just in much more adoption than we thought. We have uh, you know, quite a lot of enterprise customers, different verticals, uh, financial, healthcare, uh, industrial, but actually also a lot of tech companies. Some mm. of the more, uh, um, some of the more uh, interesting names uh, you have there in, in Silicon Valley. So, uh, which which adopt this? Um, so um, you know, it just solves, as I said, not a niche pain, right? But browsers are the most used applications in the enterprise. Right. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely, uh, you know. and and I mean, some of these use cases, right? Like you alluded to one of them before, but you know, I had a conversation recently with a CISO buddy of mine. I was at the Ossert conference. I bumped into him, and uh, we were just talking about some of his challenges. And he mentioned this thing of like not being able to trust the endpoints of like contractors and partners who are you know coming in and authenticating to things, and like you know, it it made him very nervous. Uh, and I said, have you thought about using Island? And he's, and he, you know, did the whole thing of like, who's Island. And then we went through that process of like, gee, that kind sounds kind of silly to, oh my God, that's going to solve all my problems. Um, you know, that happened very quickly. I understand that's a, that's a really, um, big one for you that gets a lot of the customers in the front door, right? That, that use case of contractors and partners. Correct. If you, if you think about the, I call this the asymmetrical nature of the web. So when you go to Salesforce, right? Salesforce has hundreds of security professionals, right? Make sure you can't hack into Salesforce, the data is secure, etc. But when you access it from your browser on an untrusted device, right? There you go. Now you got to trust that device because data can leak, the cookies can leak, cash can leak, somebody can take a screenshot, PII data can be copied and pasted outside, and you have to enforce quite a lot of controls, right? Uh, to do that, you're going to make that machine what we call a managed device, which is a challenge. Yeah, you've got to have EDR on it. You've got to have DLP <laughs> on it. You've got to manage what they can save from the browser to the disk. And, you know, with, with Island, I guess the nice thing is, you know, it's probably still nice to have EDR on it, but it's not essential anymore because you've at least built some anti-tampering into it. And a lot of the DLP use cases is solved because you can restrict the ability of users to interact with the file system. I mean, it's just, you're right. Like once you actually have an enterprise browser up and running, like the things that become easy are things that are otherwise very difficult. Absolutely. And, and, and also if you consider the deployment model is a very Zoom style deployment model. So what I mean is, um, in the case where you want to protect business applications, right, 
Um, think about it like Zoom. If I send you a Zoom link and you don't have Zoom, it would prompt you to download Zoom, right? If you do have it, it would just launch Zoom, right? So the 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 down the deployment experience is is also very very native. You go to Salesforce, so you go to your business application, right? And we automatically launch Island for you, or we prompt you to download it, right? So the entire chain of get it deployed in you know like you deploy a browser, five ten seconds, then everything you mentioned from DLP to VPN connectivity is already packaged in that in that browser distribution. The look yeah. and the look and feel is based on Chromium, so it it looks like it looks exactly like your you know Chrome or your Edge is the same user experience. Um, that touches uh, it really it really brings the ball home. Now, now you sort of mentioned oh you know this sort of VPN equivalency, um, and I guess what you mean by that is you can actually bind the the particular you know browser installer that you send to someone. You can bind that to an application, right? So that only that browser can access that application. And if you try to hit that application with a regular browser, you can't. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. Correct, correct. So we see a lot of cases where, um, you know, uh, end users can still use the favorite browser, right, to go to the, you know, Facebook or Instagram or do the do their personal stuff, right? And then when they try to go to the business applications, we tie it into Island. They have to use Island, or vice versa. They can use Island. They open it. They get a home page with all of their applications, right? And and by the way, some of those applications are uh, SaaS applications like Salesforce or Jira or, or Workday, and some of those can be internal applications behind the corporate firewall, behind the perimeter, or somewhere in the cloud protected. Um, and then when they try to when they want to use the social networks or the personal stuff, uh, the organization can set a policy where uh, we automatically launch Chrome or Edge for them or any other browser um, to create that uh, dexterity. Yeah, that separation. So how does that work, that binding, right? Like how do you actually, you know, spin this up so that you can access some, you know, on-prem uh, uh, you know, web application without needing a VPN in such a way that doesn't expose it to non-island browsers. Like, I'm just curious what the mechanism is there. Yeah, so there's a few mechanisms. One is you tie the applications to the identity provider. So we act as a next top identity provider. So if you have like Okta or Ping or Azure AD, now before you let uh, into the application, there's another verification that uh, we perform, kind of like a handshake between our cloud and the browser to make sure that you're using island. Um, that's so, so you do need some sort of application-aware, sorry, identity-aware proxy in the middle, or you have that piece we, as well? We have that piece. We have that piece. You know, we have that okay, piece right, right, uh, right. for you. And then, um, and then that lets you in all of the applications that are already exposed to the internet. But if you have applications behind the corporate uh, firewall or behind the perimeter, we would either connect to your existing um, network, so think about the uh, uh, any uh, SASE or SSE vendor that has a connector, right? Or we would deploy our own connector. We call this Island Private Access. So you don't have to buy any other tool, right, to get uh, a connectivity inside. You obviously no need for a VPN as well. So that's the part that's the identity-aware proxy. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, right? Because that's, a, yeah... Because it's all well and good to be able to use an identity-aware proxy to 
publish an internal application to the internet, that's great. But then, you know, you got problems that come with that. And one of those problems is, you know, as we all discovered during COVID, is just a whole bunch of uncontrolled, unmanaged devices that are then are going to be connecting to it, right? Correct. So that's where that's where our identity proxy comes into uh, into mind, where we actually enforce the fact that you're using Island. Island has what we call device posture and device enrollment built in. So we make sure the device is trusted. We make sure your endpoint protections are up to date. Uh, we make yeah. sure the right software is in place. And then if it's not, right, we're going to create that experience that explains the end user what he needs to do, right, um, to to gain access. So turn on your endpoint protection or update your Windows uh, uh, device, right? Yeah. And before you do that, you're going to get blocked. So think about us tying your identity and your device to the network uh, in, uh, in, you know, just just built in. Well, I mean, the other thing is too, that even if you have someone on that machine, like an attacker, right? It's far from straightforward to then, I mean, it's look, it's, it's going to be doable, but it's going to be complicated to then try to get into the island sandbox and start raiding material out of that. And once you do, then you need a clone to be able to come in and be a genuine island browser as well. And it, I don't know, it just adds complexity to any attacker who's on that machine in the first place. It's, it's very cool. It's, it's doable, of course. Like any, yeah, any anything exactly. in our yeah. business, if somebody tells you it's not doable, he, you know, it's probably his solution <laughs> is not doable. But the um, the uh, um, we make it very hard from a threat model perspective. So what we've done is we have a module we call our self-protection module. And there's a team of X endpoint protection EDR experts who built it into into Island. And what it does is things like um, blocks automatic or manual screenshots. So we tie the browser to the DRM capabilities, the digital rights management capabilities of the operating system. You cannot attach a debugger. You cannot perform many in the middle attack. Ex you know extensions you don't trust do not have access to your HTML, the network, etc. So think about quite a lot of security protections, right, to make it really hard for the attacker. And, and finally, you know, organizations can also deploy endpoint protection and we connect island logic to the endpoint protection logic. So we make sure it's up to date. We make sure it has active protections on the browser environment. Um, a much more secure solution than deploying five different VPNs and VDIs and trusting those uh, um all alone. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. Look, we're going to, we're going to talk about this more later this year. You're going to come back and we're going to do a much longer conversation. Uh, but for now, Dan Amiga, thank you uh, so much for joining us just to have a bit of a nerd session uh, all about the, the Island browser. It's been fun. Thanks. Thank you for having me, Patrick. That was Island's co-founder and CTO, Dan Amiga there. Big thanks to him for that. Find them at island.io. And uh, yeah, I imagine for a lot of you listening to that, your wheels are already spinning with the possibilities. Uh, but that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. 